Welcome to the Case for Conservation podcast, where we explore some of the underexplored aspects of biodiversity conservation and examine some of the more questionable conventional wisdom in this field. For this, the June 2021 edition of the podcast, I speak to Adam Veltz, a fellow South African who I've long admired for his uncompromising approach to conservation and some of the best articles that I've read on this subject. We discuss conservation projects that might not deserve the level of attention and adulation that they have received. And these range from large-scale tree planting projects to expensive urban greening. It's important to emphasize, as Adam does during the chat, that there are plenty of good examples of initiatives like these. But to get things right, we need to be a little more discerning and to pay a little more attention to nuance. There are some interesting related links on the webpage of the episode, including a recent article of Adam's to which he refers in the discussion. Let me start off by asking for a quick story of the path that led you to where you are now and and what you're doing now in conservation. And can you also just explain what you mean when you refer to yourself as a conservation theorist? I grew up in South Africa and I was always, uh, since a young age, fascinated by the natural world. I was very into fish at one point and very into snakes at another point. And then I got into birds and then I traveled to Alaska as an 18-year-old exchange student, which was amazing, got me to see a whole different environment. And I came back at the age of 19. I did a Bachelor of Science in Botany and Zoology at Rhodes University, but I soon realized that I didn't really want to be an academic. I didn't want to be stuck in a lab. And zoology in those days was was very much the early days of the sort of DNA revolution and things like this. Um, Most people that had jobs that paid them anything like a living wage ended up in a lab. And I I didn't want to do that. And I was fascinated by photography. So in fact, I I became a photographer straight after doing my Bachelor of Science Mm -hmm. and ended up photographing all sorts of things like fashion and um, became quite well known for creative portraits of artists and you know, a totally different world to zoology Mm. for a few years. And then I went off to London, um, tried to get into documentary film. That didn't quite work out the way I intended it to. I ended up living in Taiwan for a year, teaching English to raise money. I went back and did an honors degree at the University of Cape Town, really looking at at birds and and plants. and, And I got into environmental economics and ecological economics. And I did most of a master's degree trying to map the value of nature in the Little Karoo, which is a super diverse semi-arid area here in South Africa, and uh, to make money more than anything else just by accident, I started writing articles about environmental stuff for South African magazines, and that turned into really my career for the last 15 years or so has mostly been writing magazine feature articles about environmental stuff and wildlife. Um, I ended up living in the U.S. again for about eight years, mostly in New York City, traveled quite widely through the U.S., uh, saw a lot of stuff, learned a lot of stuff, Mm -hmm. made a couple of films, 
documentary films. And now I'm, I'm writing a, a book about climate change and the natural world. Mm. And over the years, let's say inhabiting the media world, but knowing quite a lot about especially wildlife conservation, but also other environmental stuff. Mm. I've really started thinking about conservation. I'm fascinated by the mechanics of nature conservation or wildlife conservation, whatever you want to call it. I'm fascinated by the politics of it. I'm fascinated by the economics of it. What role does money play in conservation? What roles do values play? And so increasingly, I find myself theorizing about conservation, trying to think about conservation as a concept, as an idea, but also an idea that has this very practical side of it. And I think there's been a lot of very foggy thinking around this, um, even among very well-known people in, in the conservation world, and a lot of unnecessary conflict around concepts of conservation. And so at the moment, part of my book that I'm writing is actually trying to create a new theory, a new framework um, through which to view conservation and, and how it should be done. One that I think is is very simple and easy to understand, but also reconciles a lot of the, the conflicts that we've seen going on in the conservation world in recent years between sort of so-called traditional conservationists and, and a lot of so-called new conservationists. Hmm. I also quite often get the impression that basically that we are or have been telling the same message ad nauseum for decades now and very often trying to come up with new ways of spinning it, but really kind of, you know, always going back to the same the same story and the same way of relaying that to, to others without really making a huge amount of, of headway. You might diverge from me a little bit on this, but I'm kind of quite attracted by the new conservationist way of looking th at things. Perhaps that's just because it's it's something fresh, you know, and, and they seem to have a little bit of a, a more broad-minded perspective on on things. What's your take on that? I mean, I've, my feeling, having read quite a lot of the new conservation literature, is that it's it's self-contradictory in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. and it, it doesn't really know what it wants to be. It was quite good at pointing out a couple of um, conceptual flaws, let's say, in traditional conservation. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of degenerated into a sort of mush of ideas that don't really hang together and that often don't make sense if you interrogate them. And a lot of new conservationist idea do not have a moral center. They don't have the kind of moral center that makes for effective communication. Mm. I think it's been shown over and over in the fields of cognitive linguistics and other things like that, that that speaking from your moral truth is a very powerful way of communicating. And I'm not sure that this has been very well understood by a lot of, let's say, non-scientists, <laughs> non non-cognitive linguists, non-experts in that field. Yeah. And it is quite a difficult thing to do. It's It's quite a skilled thing to do. But I think often the principles aren't well understood by conservationists. The principles of effective communication are actually not particularly well understood. And I think a lot of scientists have 
enormous difficulty going outside of their fields of training. And they make assumptions about other fields. And quite frankly, a lot of scientists think they're smarter than anybody else in the room. And that's a problem. People are very, very bad at going back to first principles. And this is what I find is this enormous confusion results from people not going back to something as elementary as defining the terms that they use, the basic terms. There's just enormous amounts of confusion. Recently, I've asked a lot of very prominent people in the conservation world, for example, can you give me a definition of conservation or of nature conservation or of wildlife conservation? Mm -hmm. I have yet to see one. Mm. So there's all these, you know, super famous, extremely well-known conservationists, not one of whom can define to me in a simple, clear, credible uh, way, as you would in a dictionary, what it is that they do, you know. And I got a, another very angry answer from a well-known British conservationist. Well, we don't waste our time thinking about things like this. We just get on with it. But my point is, unless you can explain or articulate what it is that you do mm. and the moral center, the thing that drives you, you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to effectively communicate. You're going to land up in the types of confusions and conflicts that we've landed up in. And there's, uh, you know, there's a, a, a thing, I, th I think it's very much the flavor of, of new conservation, for example, is this idea that, you know, nature no longer exists. You know, either we've influenced the world so much that there's nothing like nature anymore, so the term is irrelevant, or you see arguments like, well, there was never any separation between humans and nature, and we must bond ourselves back to nature and see ourselves as part of nature. And so this idea that we must talk about, you know, nature conservation is 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 silly. Mm. It, it also very quickly ends up in, in a totally irrational sort of soup of, of vagueness. You know, the idea of we are part of nature. Well, what does that mean? We're dependent on nature. Well, what does that mean? What part of nature are we dependent on? Because mm. we're clearly not dependent on all of nature. And so I find that many of the new conservations end up getting stuck in the same the same mire of, of vagueness that they accuse the, the, the traditional conservationists of being in. But if to really understand <laughs> my thinking around this and, and how I aim to resolve this, uh, you'll have to read my book. Okay. <laughs> so let's just swivel and I'll start with a, an anecdote. Many years ago, I was driving in the Arabian desert along the border between Abu Dhabi and Dubai where there's very little to see besides sand, basically just a sand dune desert. And then suddenly the desert just gave way to this carpet of brilliant green. And this was one of the many mass tree plantings undertaken to green the desert, I think by the Emirati government in this case. And it was immediately noticeable that all the trees were the same species and all the same size, in other words, the same age, and they were irrigated. There was this network of black piping underneath them. And I later found out that the water used to irrigate them was piped 20 or 30 kilometers from desalination plants on the coast. So all in all, a pretty resource-heavy undertaking. And I was reminded of this when I read an article of yours about mass tree plantings. Can you just give listeners an idea of, firstly, what you mean by you turned them huge tree planting projects? 
And why are there so many of them around? Because this Emirati example of mine was just one of the uh, fairly early ones, uh, but I understand that they're all over the place now, and that one was uh, tiny in comparison to, to many of the others. Yeah, so I, I recently wrote an article for Yale Environment 360, quite a well-known environmental website based in the U.S., about these sort of mass tree planting projects that seem to be uh, popping up everywhere now. For some years now, the momentum has been building for these projects that are often based around enormous numbers. So people would say, and the names of the projects are often include the numbers. So you'll get a, in Pakistan, some years back, they started a billion tree tsunami, they called it, which was a project to plant a billion trees in, in one province of Pakistan. That has since morphed into a 10 billion tree tsunami that's now nationwide across the country. There are trillion tree projects now. There, are, The Canadian government has a, a 2 billion tree project, I think. It's become very trendy among politicians and large corporations to announce and sort of get behind these mass tree planting projects. Mm -hmm. I think because trees are seen as a political winner, you know, everybody likes trees. There are all these as you say, these ideas around greening the desert, the trees are this unmitigated good, mm. and that the more we have of them, the better. You know, the more trees we have, the more uh, carbon we're going to sequester as part of the whole push for so-called nature-based carbon solutions. And, um, you know, just trees are nice, and uh, trees are also a way of asserting yourself in the world, right? You're planting something that actually grows, and, and you can claim credit for it. It's, it's, it's very active, it's very good in that way. And the media loves it. Journalists put photographs of little kids planting trees all over there, put photographs of greening the desert, and everybody thinks this is fantastic. So, you know, it's rolling out in a big way. And um, we've seen huge corporations and the World Economic Forum, the whole Davos crowd get behind their own trillion tree project. They're just everywhere. So I guess the follow-on question would be, even if it is used as a, a means of self-promotion, if it achieves some good, then what's the problem? Yeah, so these projects work off the idea, the widely held idea that there's no such thing as a bad tree. You know, trees are this uh, pure good in the world. Mm -hmm. But a bunch of environmental activists, social activists and ecologists are starting to say, you know, hang on, let's slow down. A lot of these tree projects, especially these really big tree planting projects that are based on numerical targets that they try to hit in a very short space of time, a lot of these projects have really bad side effects that can uh, very easily outweigh any good that might come of them. And they point to examples of trees being planted en masse in these kind of industrial monocultures, right, and, and being called forests, often Australian eucalypts, which use a colossal amount of water and so can dry up local water supplies. They point to areas where people's land has been appropriated by big uh, tree planting projects, especially rural people who don't have uh, much power over their land in countries with poor governance, like, for example, in northern Mozambique, Scandinavian church groups have mounted these massive tree planting projects that have just totally taken over a whole lot of rural people's land. 
And there are problems with uh, invasive species. A, a lot of the trees that get planted are, you know, not native to the area that get planted in. There are also problems with a lot of the trees not surviving because, you know, the political capital is often in the photo opportunity of putting the tree in the ground, right? Yes. Of that smiling kid putting the tree in the ground. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, you know, places get bulldozed, holes get dug, trees get put in the ground, and then they get forgotten about and a lot of them die. Also, because a lot of the tree planting uh, projects are these monocultures, they're extremely vulnerable to diseases. So you get insects or fungi or whatever getting into these plantations. There's no diversity in them and they all die. Mm -hmm. Often these trees get planted in, in grasslands or in, in so-called desert areas with the assumption being that these are barren areas that need to be reforested, quote unquote. But in fact, a lot of these grassland and desert areas have unique species living in them. They have their own ecology. They, they can be very, very diverse. And when you replace the native vegetation with these monocultures of, of eucalypts or whatever, you just kill off everything that, that lived there. Mm -hmm. And often, just to add to the long <laughs> litany of problems with, with some of these projects, a lot of the time the carbon that might be sequestered by these trees is less than the carbon that might have been sequestered by the native vegetation that was there in the first place, mm -hmm. like, you know, the grassland or the, or the wetland that mm -hmm. was there beforehand. And the final cherry on the top is trees are, are generally quite dark. And so they reflect a lot less light than a lot of open habitats like deserts do. They, they reflect a lot less of the incoming solar radiation from the sun. Mm -hmm. And so they can actually heat the atmosphere. They convert more of that incoming solar radiation into sensible heat than a, than a desert surface would. So overall, if we, we start planting gigantic forests all over the, the planet, we might be heating our atmosphere rather than cooling it down. Mm -hmm. Picking up on one of those points, I remember being told that trees planted out are sort of guaranteed to be the first ones that are eaten by herbivores for some reason. <laughs> so it might be that they're, you know, because they've been raised in the tender loving care conditions that they're sort of extra succulent or something. And I think I've also heard that uh, this is obviously very variable from place to place and, and highly dependent on rainfall. But I've also heard that as little as 10% of a planting will survive unless it receives you know, considerable follow-up care and watering for at least a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, for uh, well, also, I'll give you an example. I mean, it's quite well known that the Chinese have been planting enormous numbers of trees um, to supposedly hold back the desert in northern China for quite a few years now. And this is, in a way, like the global flagship project like this. They've planted billions and billions of trees. But what's often not talked about is how they've also lost billions and billions of trees. Because, as you say, trees often, especially if they're not native or especially if they're planted in a pretty harsh environment, they need an enormous amount of follow-up care. And even if they get that, they're often more vulnerable to diseases and so on. Mm. So there have been years in which China has literally lost over a billion trees in a single year um, out of their forests, I say in inverted commas, in these big plantations that they're 
they're putting in simply because a new uh, type of insect has got in there. And because they're largely monocultural, these insects spread like crazy and you can just lose as much as you've planted, you know, <laughs> in a single year. Um, without the diversity of a, of a natural forest, you're just so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that's what's been happening in a lot of places. So I think increasingly social activists who've seen people lose their land, ecologists who've seen natural ecosystems be destroyed by these projects, agricultural economists who are starting to look at how much arable land some of these projects take away from food production. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of people are starting to say, hang on, let's let's think about this tree stuff a little more carefully because doing tree planting well is actually really hard and it requires a lot of thought and a lot of planning. And that doesn't go along with the, the rhetoric around these mass scale projects that are being pushed by the great and the good, as I call them, the, the big corporations and the governments around the world, who are all pushing this narrative that we need to plant enormous numbers of trees really quickly because the climate crisis is upon us and we have you know no time to wait. Mm. And, and so there's this clash between, as I say, the, the proponents of these mass tree planting projects that tend to have very well-known and very politically powerful people behind them and have a lot of positive media behind them and the scientists and the activists who tend not to have the kind of platform Mm. that the tree planting proponents do. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because you'd kind of, well, I guess the, the average concerned citizen would assume that projects like this are being done with all the necessary expertise behind them, but it sounds like that's not or very often not the case, right? It's absolutely not the case. I mean, there are very good examples of tree planting projects. There are also lots of terrible ones, uh, mm-hmm. honestly. So can you just explain why you, you, you have alluded to this already, but can you kind of just expand a bit on what you mean by performative conservation and perhaps uh, to give a couple of, of other examples of this way of practicing conservation? Yeah. So being uh, quote unquote green is obviously a it's become politically tractable in in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of, again, governments and corporations and even influential individuals want to appear to be green. And they then indulge in in what I like to call performative conservation. And this is just a tweak on the term performative activism, which is – activism that's designed to increase the social status or enlarge the social capital or the financial capital of a person rather than address the problem that they're supposed to be doing activism around. So, you know, somebody who posts a picture of themselves on Instagram, whatever, planting a tree, who has no real interest in uh, actually <laughs> reforesting anything or saving the forest or saving trees, but is mm-hmm. is much more interested in, in what it looks like and how it can uh, raise their social status and um, increase their bank balance, really. And I think quite a few of these tree planting projects fall into this category of performative conservation because they they can cost a lot of money, they, they generate a lot of hype. They raise the profile of the people involved, but their actual benefit in terms of biodiversity conservation, their actual benefit in terms of ecosystem stabilization, their actual benefit in terms of slowing down climate breakdown is very, very small. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's important to start 
thinking about this a little more more deeply because on the one hand you could argue okay look somebody planted a, a bunch of trees and they got a bunch of good press over it and they made a bunch of money or whatever you know who cares you know at least they planted some trees at what point does that become though a distraction from a much bigger problem elsewhere or does it even drive a much bigger problem elsewhere so uh, i mean i i've heard of uh, tree planting projects in, in india recently that actually took place last year while people were covid lockdown and so on where government agencies and corporations went into areas and cut down native forest. They were able to do this because the indigenous people and the local people who would normally have protected that forest were not able to go into the forest because they were locked down because of COVID. And they've gone and, and chopped down these native forests. And then they were very rapidly replaced with eucalyptus monoculture industrial plantations and this was all spun as reforestation and you know greening the earth and this sort of thing mm -hmm. they ride on that assumption that i said earlier that people a lot of people have that any tree is a good tree and that people can't distinguish between trees and that people can't distinguish between diverse natural forest and an industrial monoculture Mm -hmm. So it becomes this kind of performative thing. And this goes into to other realms as well. We often have examples where people spend huge amounts of money and hugely hype greening projects that actually deliver very, very little conservation benefit while something awful is happening in the same country or even in the same city that it becomes a distraction from. Mm -hmm. There's a park called the High Line in New York City, in Manhattan, in a, in a very, very dense sort of high-rise part of the city, which is an old elevated railway track mm -hmm. that uh, was abandoned decades ago. I think maybe the last train ran on it in, the, in 1980 or something like that. And over the years, it, it was progressively colonized by, I guess, what you would call weeds, really sort of pioneer type of plants started growing in thickets, you know, on top of this old railway line. And it became a, a kind of a sort of strip of green through the city. And at one point, they wanted to tear this thing down um, because it was old and it was disused and was getting in the way. And then somebody came up with the idea, oh, no, we should turn it into a public park, like a, a linear park, uh, drawing on a, another example of, of a park like that, that it been built in Paris previously. Mm. So what's happened is the High Line, this old elevated railway line, has had um, very fancy architects come in and design a, a pathway. You can now walk along it and they've planted beds of flowers, um, a lot of locally native plant species. They have a little tags on them with the name. They pay interpretive people, sort of like park rangers, to walk around on a nice summer's day. You can walk along the High Line and these people can tell you more about the plants that have been planted there. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's all sort of pushed forward as this kind of urban conservation thing. But honestly, I, I mean, I've been to the High Line myself a few times and one critic described it as a human cattle shoot. Like it was just this sort of parade of, of jammed in visitors. It gets something like 8 million visitors a year. Everybody just sort of meandering along this pathway in a crowd, looking bored, getting hot and sweaty. It's very, very crowded. Hardly anybody has any time to look at the plants. And the real thing is the money it costs. It costs tens of millions of US dollars to build. It costs millions more dollars every year to maintain. Mm. 
and the biodiversity benefit is basically zero. Hmm. Whereas elsewhere in New York City is actually quite diverse. It has lots of interesting rare plants. It has tons of birds. It has all sorts of interesting nature hidden away in little pockets of the city. But a lot of the most diverse little pockets of nature left in the city were being sold off to property developers at the same time as the High Line was being built. Mm. So the High Line is sort of held up as this big, shiny distraction from the trashing of nature that's going on elsewhere in the city. It's money that could, in my view, be spent far more effectively elsewhere, even in the city, to conserve nature in the city. I'm not even talking about how much of a rainforest in Asia or Africa that money could conserve. And really, at the end of the day, it's a project that sort of waves around these green credentials in order to enhance the social status and the bank balances of the property owners in the area. The people who own the skyscrapers and the apartment blocks in the area who have seen the values of their properties skyrocket since the High Line was built because of the publicity and the sort of the whole greening of the city thing that goes around it and the whole fact that it's now this tourist destination. Mm -hmm. And, of course, a lot of them get tax write-offs for donating to the High Line because it's a a non-profit project for the public good. So call me a cynic. I mean, it's nice that there's this place where people can go and walk around and maybe theoretically learn about locally native plants. Mm-hmm. But in, in actual fact, its conservation value is essentially zero because it's raised the property values in its area. It's driven poor people out of the neighborhoods that, that they've lived in for generations. Right, yeah. Another big urban park that I, I knew very well in New York because I lived fairly close to it was a park called Prospect Park in Brooklyn. It's, it's a big park. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if they'd invested even a tenth of the money that they put into the High Line just into improving access to nature or restoring some native species and creating educational and interaction opportunities for people in in Prospect Park. They would have reached more people in a more meaningful way and benefited the local wild species more substantially than the Highline did. But there weren't enough wealthy political donors with high-priced properties right next door, I guess. I, just to, to quickly return to what you said about the analogy of performative activism, I guess it maybe it should just be noted, and tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, but it should be noted that people often engage in performative activism, you know, simply being uh, ignorant of the fact that they're actually just not well informed enough. Do you think that that sort of consolation could be bestowed on performative conservation as well? Uh, Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's clearly a a combination of things happening here. I think some of these projects are generated by deeply cynical individuals who are out to to gain. Mm -hmm. I think um, some of them are initiated without much thought. It's sort of, you know, this seemed like a good idea at the time type of thing. Uh, What I have noticed, for example, uh, what's quite interesting about the World Economic Forum's Trillion Trees project is that when they started talking about this uh, really in a big way in public, I guess about a year and a half ago, there was a lot of rhetoric around, you know, we're going to plant hundreds of millions of trees. You know, we're going to plant these massive areas full of trees. And it's all about tree planting. And I think 
as the concerns of some of these ecologists and activists and so on have started creeping in, I've seen quite a pivot, in fact, even more of a pivot since just my story was written, but a, a pivot of the WF away from the tree planting, and now they're talking much more about natural forest conservation. It seems like some influential people uh, connected with the World Economic Forum, you know, the Davos crowd, saw some work produced by Thomas Crowther's lab. Uh, Thomas Crowther is a young British uh, ecologist, quite a charismatic guy, works out of university in, in Switzerland, and his lab has produced work that inter alia looked at the theoretical amount of carbon that could be sequestered if vast amounts of the planet were planted with trees. And I think uh, some people at WEF thought, wow, this is a great idea. You know, we could we could uh, do this. You know, this is a grand gesture. And they kind of jumped on this tree planting bandwagon without thinking it through terribly much. And when you know when they started talking about their trillion trees project a lot in public about 18 months ago they were very much you know pushing the tree planting angle but i've noticed recently their their rhetoric has pivoted they talk a lot less about tree planting and much more about natural forest restoration and i think this is a result of uh, the work of activists and other scientists who've started penetrating their their thought bubbles and um you know, but I see a lot of the, the oh, wow, it seemed like a good idea at the time kind of thinking going on in, in the tree planting uh, space. Mm. This is not to say that there isn't a role for tree planting, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And none of these critics are saying that tree planting per se, all tree planting is a bad idea. Mm. There is certainly a role for quality forest restoration. But, you know, often, often these People are not planting native species back into deforested areas of the Amazon, for example. The Amazon is still being deforested at an alarming rate. Yeah. People are not converting those soya fields or those cattle pastures that have replaced Amazonian forest with Amazonian trees. Yeah. You know, more and more we see people, as I say, planting these masses of eucalyptus or easy to grow, you know, fast growing trees. Mm in places like Ethiopia, where they're not native, where they can cause all these problems. Mm -hmm. And because of that time pressure and the fact that backers of some of these projects have so much money, there's real concern that, and I mean, we've already seen this happen, that you know wealthy people from the global north, per se, will go to poorer countries in the global south and say, listen, I can pay you X amount of million dollars to plant X amount of million trees, they get the carbon credits, mm -hmm. and often those countries don't have the scientific expertise or the planning expertise to figure out where the best place is to plant these trees. So they just get thrown in the ground as fast as possible without you know, much thought, and that's, that's where the, the problem comes in. And so in a sense, it is performative, you could say, because it is, although they're not directly linked, it is a distraction from the much more serious and, and ecologically meaningful process of deforestation of the destruction of, of native forests that is still going ahead. Speaking of distractions, offline we spoke about another example in South Korea where another urban park has been kind of a distraction for ecological destruction that, that went on at the same time as its, as its construction. 
Yeah, it's it's very similar to the High Line in my view. Chongyichang River revitalization project, as it's often called, is a very famous example of um, urban greening in the city of Seoul in South Korea. In the early 2000s, the city decided to demolish a highway that had been built on top of what had been a, a natural river course a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. They demolished the highway and they sort of reopened this river. They daylighted this river. They built very expensive pathways. They landscaped a whole lot of stuff along this river. They had to actually bring in a bunch of water, had to be pumped in um, because the river had, to all intents and purposes, stopped flowing. And in late 2005, this was open to the public. It's become super popular as a walkway through the city. They've planted trees along it. I mean, it's very pleasant urban space. You know, it's um, dropped the the temperature of the city. It's sort of mitigated the urban heat island effect mm. to some extent around the city. And people even see some, you know, wild birds and butterflies and so on uh, come into this space. And it was heavily promoted by the South Korean national government and also the city government. I mean, I went to, I remember going to international conferences around conservation and so on and climate change in the early 2000s in different parts of the world, even here in Cape Town, there would be delegates with glossy pamphlets, you know, promoting the Changyichang River restoration project as this fantastic example of urban greening and nature restoration and all of this sort of thing. But what they didn't mention is that at around the same time, the South Koreans were building what is now the world's longest seawall in order to contain and fill in an enormous area of natural coastal mudflat, which is incredibly important for, for literally millions of uh, migratory birds especially migratory shorebirds, including rare species, was also very, very important for the marine ecology in the area and this kind of thing. So while opening up this small stretch of Seoul and maybe increasing the quality of life for the urban residents of this area, they were conducting this colossal construction project which absolutely trashed the same Angume wetlands and uh, now busy turning that so-called reclaimed area into things like factories and golf courses and farms and so on. It's an enormous area. It's uh, 99,000 acres. Mm -hmm. So I I think, again, this shiny object of distraction, arguably not a bad thing, arguably it improved the quality of life of these urban people. It brought some greenery into the city. It brought some water into the city. That's, you know, that's great. You know, it replaced an awful highway. It, in fact, improved traffic flow ultimately in the city. You could argue that it brought all these benefits to the city. Mm -hmm. But the way that it was promoted as a sort of conservation project or a greening project, while in the same country there was this other stuff going on, to my mind, was definitely a a distraction and definitely becomes an example of performative conservation. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that I've been doing a lot of thinking about and and, and a lot of other people have been thinking about in in lots of different ways is is conservation prioritization, right? uh, We only have, as individuals, so much time in our lives. We only have so much money. Mm. We only have so much energy. What do we do to make the the biggest impact or what do we do to to make the best of our time Mm. and our money in terms of benefiting nature and i think it's something we need to think about quite carefully and 
I don't believe that resources for conservation are as limited as some people think they are. I think there is enormous space to increase the resources and time available to conservation work and get more people involved in it. Uh, I don't think this is a totally zero-sum game, Mm. but I do think prioritization is important. And I think spending this colossal amounts of money on very high-profile projects can very often be a distraction from much more important work that needs to be happening, often very close by to the areas that these big projects are being Mm -hmm. rolled out in. So without being too much uh, of a cynic and too too skeptical, I don't want to write off, you know, all urban greening efforts by any means. I think there's some very good examples of this around the world. Yes. But I think we do need to ask ourselves before we support a project like this or get behind a project or donate a project or, you know, support a political candidate who's pushing this project, mm. ask ourselves, well, what else could we do with that money or that time or those resources or that political capital that might be a bigger environmental win or a bigger social win in those areas. I guess that goes back to, you know, what I was saying earlier on about having the the right expertise involved because unfortunately it seems like the challenge is this sort of mismatch between what looks good and what does good. And those two very often don't line up as you've illustrated with all these examples. So it's a case of kind of, you know, having the right advice at the right time. I think of myself as an old-fashioned naturalist in the sense that I like walking around and looking at plants and bugs and birds and, and what have you. And I like learning their names and I like learning little facts about them and learning how they fit into the greater ecosystem. Mm-hmm. It's a very old-fashioned uh, thing to do, I suppose. But I think a lot of our problems come from the fact that people really just can't tell the difference between things as simple as oak trees and pine trees. So they, they can get hoodwinked quite easily with these greening projects. Yeah. Well, it's green and it's a tree, therefore it must be good, yeah, yeah. even if that tree is, is is causing trouble. And I'll give you an example here in Cape Town. You know, in Cape Town in South Africa, we're, we're, we're in the middle of um, probably the most diverse temperate ecosystem in the world, the, the Cape Feinbos, as it's known. Uh, we, we sit surrounded by just this absolutely stunning variety of, of plants, many of which are very, very rare. The ecosystem that the city is, is built in is just absolutely gobsmacking. And it's become quite fashionable in recent years to plant your garden, if you're a suburban person who has a garden, to plant your garden with these indigenous plants. But a lot of what gets planted is not, in fact, indigenous. locally indigenous. Mm. People don't, in fact, plant <laughs> you know, the plants that, that really would have grown in, in their area, for example. They will bring a closely related plant from 500 kilometers away or a hybrid that's been made in a nursery somewhere because it looks better. Mm. Some of our most spectacular flowering plants here are the proteas. They have these you know, beautiful flowers that people love to look at and love to look at in their gardens. And what's happened with this big push towards indigenous gardening is people have brought in protea species that don't actually occur in the Cape Town area naturally, Mm. or they've brought in hybrids from elsewhere. And birds and bees have come along and taken the pollen from these plants to naturally growing proteas in the national park that's in the middle of the city. And now we have these hybrid proteas being created 
we literally call them frankenflora, frankenproteas. And I found one just this weekend. I was walking in a, a, the national park near my house. And lo and behold, I found this protea bush where all the flowers on it were horribly deformed. And I sent a, a photograph to an expert that I know, and he confirmed. In fact, this is one of these hybrids. Mm. And so what we're seeing now is indigenous gardeners are actually wrecking natural species are destroying the genetic integrity of natural species through good intentions through doing good you mm. know good intentions mm -hmm. there, there's no real consciousness that there are different kinds of proteas and that you can cause problems when you plant them yeah, yeah. Uh, and so i'm a real advocate for like you know thinking about how how do we get people to start looking at the nuance here, looking at the difference here, mm -hmm. get away. You know, a lot of conservation media is, is around finding the catchiest slogan, the shortest, most punchy way of getting your point across, you know, to sort of penetrate the media maelstrom that we're surrounded with nowadays. Mm. But, you know, I, I'm thinking, geez, now how do we get people to slow down and learn to look and start appreciating this absolutely fascinating differences that, that are out there? And I think once you reach people in the right way, a lot of people do become fascinated. Mm. I've known people in New York City, even here in Cape Town, who were completely urban people who had no interest in nature. And maybe we went for a walk in a park and I started pointing out the different birds to them and they would say things like, God, you know, I had no idea there were like a hundred species of birds in this urban park. Mm. In fact, in my local park in New York, I had 186 bird species I saw in, in about two years. Mm. But then once they, their eyes get open to that diversity, this becomes fascinating to them. And I've seen a lot of people get turned on to that. It's like, maybe, maybe this is just an idea, we should try and veer away from the simple messaging and try and, and move to a more complex sort of engaging type of messaging, mm. Mm -hmm. mode of interaction. Perhaps we, don't, we shouldn't be reaching people online at all. You know, maybe the internet is, a, is like a, a space where this kind of message or this kind of thinking just doesn't translate very well. Maybe we need to be reaching people in person, mm. you know, like we used to. I don't know. But I think there's space for nuance. I think a lot of people want nuance. I think a lot of people appreciate nuance. I think a lot of people appreciate feeling connected and knowing about the environment around them. Yes. It's just how do we find a way to to bridge the gaps. I mean, that's the, the million-dollar question, right? Mm -hmm. That's the million-dollar question. But I, I don't think we get there through simplistic messaging. I don't think we get there through generic greening. I think that can be a distraction. Uh -huh. I don't think we get there through mass, large-scale projects. I think we get there through local. I think we get there through personal, through intimate storytelling, maybe. Yeah, and perhaps some ownership of processes as well, you know, involvement and ownership that, that I think very often gets people interested. Yes. It's interesting what you say about nuance, just to get a little bit philosophical for a second, just generally speaking, with all of the discussions around social issues, I guess, uh, globally at the moment, what struck me, I think, maybe above all, is the lack of nuance, uh, which is exactly what you're referring to in this situation. And the way that I think especially social media, and I know everyone loves to bash social media in this way, but especially through social media, nuance is lost. Twitter is just the, you know, the distillation of all of this. You, you don't, you simply don't have enough space uh, for, for nuance, you know, but even, even other forums, I think that anonymity and just the ease of putting things in writing and the, 
the allure of laziness to just write things in few words and to just have your say are all kind of ingredients for losing nuance and for simplistic messaging, which I think is really like one of the biggest problems of our time or underlying uh, problems of our of our time. And I can totally see how that affects conservation as much as it, as it affects anything else. Yeah, I think we are unquestionably facing an extinction crisis. We are unquestionably dealing with very severe climate breakdown type issues. These are huge issues that demand a huge response. Hmm. But conservation is always context specific. Mm -hmm. <laughs> conservation is tricky, hmm. generally. <laughs> Conservation is, is very, very complex. Yeah. It depends on all sorts of things. There are tons of moving parts. It's very dynamic. So the question is, how do we really address that while mounting a proportionate response to the colossal problem? Mm -hmm. It is a colossal problem. And I think, you know, you know, this is, again, this is the problem I have is when you have these massive numeric targets and these short deadlines. It's a very, let's say, a very capitalist corporate type of mentality. It's people who are used to looking at numbers or used to looking at profit margins or look, used to looking at growth, at turnover, and they're very comfortable in that conceptual realm. And they're now trying to apply their thinking to the extinction crisis or to climate breakdown. Mm -hmm. And I think this might be a place for it in, in, in certain ways, but... As I go on, I, I'm a little more skeptical of that. I think we need core values. I think we need to articulate our values very, very clearly. I think we need to articulate our goals very, very clearly. But we need to be very open-minded about the methods that we use to achieve our goals. Mm -hmm. And we need to be very, very mindful that things and situations change fast. Yeah. And there's no silver bullet here. There's absolutely no silver bullet here. There's just very hard work and a lot of hard thinking to be done. Okay, that's it from Adam for now. But as mentioned, I plan to get him back on the podcast sometime to talk about his upcoming book. Meanwhile, remember to have a look at the episode page for articles of Adam's and other information related to today's topic. For the next episode, July 2021, I'll be speaking to UC Berkeley professor and cell biologist Randy Sheckman. Randy is well known for various reasons, but there are three that I'd like to point out here. Firstly, and probably most famously, in 2013, he won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, along with Thomas Sudhoff and James Rothman, for their discoveries of machinery regulating vesicle traffic, which is a major transport system in our cells. Secondly, Randy has been editor-in-chief for a combined more or less 30 years of three of the world's most prestigious scientific journals, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS, Annual Review of Cell and Developmental Biology, and eLife. PNAS is the second most cited of all scientific journals, with more than 1.9 million cumulative citations from 2008 to 2018. Finally, and of greatest relevance to our discussion, Randy has become known for his critique of certain aspects of the scientific peer review process, especially the way that big journals and impact factors distort the science, as he says. Due to Randy's speciality as a cell biologist, 
We'll be discussing the topic in the context of science more broadly, rather than conservation in particular, but it's certainly very relevant to conservation and a whole variety of other fields. Please join us.